Introducing McDonald's new one, two, three dollar menu with favorites for one, two, or three dollars, like the McChicken, the Bacon McDouble, the Happy Meal, and oh, we can get away with the husband and kids. Uh, no. But the one, two, three dollar menu could help you save for one, especially if we leave the kids at home with Grandma, of course. Oh, yeah. Build whatever meal you want with favorites on McDonald's new one, two, three dollar menu. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. My guest for this morning is Dr. Saeda Desolet. She is a thought leader, body philosopher, and has published several books, The Emergence of the Sensual Woman and The Illustrious Jade Egg. Her innovative method has been featured in works by Dr. Christine Northrup and Dr. Rachel Abrams. After two decades of professional practice, Dr. Saeda is now the visionary spokesperson for the sexual sovereignty movement. She assists women to successfully embody their sensuality while enhancing their sexual health. Dr. Saeda and I will be having a conversation about her life's journey and in light of the Me Too movement, her latest global offering, Sexual Sovereignty, how women claim this and men honor it. Good morning, Dr. Saeda. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fantastic, and I'm really excited to be here and excited to uh, be part of Mama's Kitchen today. Here at Mama's Kitchen, everything goes. We talk about everything, and it's strictly casual, and we want to learn. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, we're going to have a really profound conversation. The topic is an edgy one, so I'm pretty excited to (laughs) lean in with you and your listeners. It is a pleasure to have you on the air with me, and I'm excited to learn more about you and your passion for sexual sovereignty. Let us start by getting to know you a little bit better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Sure. So I'm French-Canadian born, and when I was about three, my parents relocated to the central part of Canada, and we lived on native reservations. So the First Nations have these different reservations. And so my first language obviously was French, and my second language ended up being Ojibwe, which is uh, one of the native tongues. And I didn't learn English till later. Uh, so that was very impactful because the things that happen on the reservation are very intense. There's a lot of um, alcohol abuse, and there's a lot of domestic abuse as well as sexual abuse. So I didn't have those experiences there, but I was witness. Uh, our house was a, a shelter for a lot of women. So from a very young age, I got to have pretty profound conversations with women who are running away from their uh, partner, per se, and just discussing things with them. And then I want to fast forward because that, that was a big chunk of my life and, uh, and then fast forward to a shocking moment in my life because I had great parents. My father taught me amazing boundaries. My mother was very clear to um, have me have a healthy relationship with my own sensuality and sexuality. So I didn't have shame around my, my own body. Um, but come to be 20 years old, I had a shocking experience that I'd heard happen to a lot of other women, but I never expected it to happen to me. And um, so what had happened was I traveled to the Caribbean and I had an island boyfriend. And in one of the evenings that we were together, he decided to rape me. And it was quite a violent experience, but I went into shock. So I didn't even realize what had happened to me until many weeks later, when I had actually gone back to Canada, had to go to the hospital. I was very unwell and had to do an emergency surgery. And post that surgery, when I came out, the surgeon said to me, I'm really sorry to say this, but you're going to need to contact your family because I think you have about two weeks to live at at best. And so that was an incredibly, you know, (laughs) shocking Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. moment for a young woman because you you just don't think about your mortality when you're 20. Right. and, and then kind of the shock of all the, the incident and everything kind of like all crashed into that moment of facing my own death and then defying it 
you know, Johnny, this is probably the moment, and we can talk about it further, but it was a very strong moment of defiance where I went, okay, that's what the doctor said, but mm-hmm. I choose to leave, live. And I don't know how mm-hmm. that's going to happen, but I'm choosing it. So from that point of that choice until this present moment, my life has been wholly dedicated to the journey of reclamation, of transformation around sensuality and sexuality. I took myself through it very thoroughly. And once I was through that, women kept coming to me and saying, Diana, please, please, you know, teach us what you're doing. We don't know what you're doing, but whatever it is, we want some. And, and so that led me into the career that I have now. So I have um, an incredible career where I get to inspire women to really step in and take claim of their own lives, and especially their sensual and sexual lives. It's very interesting, and I'm sorry to hear about the experience you had to go through, but eventually we are some total of who we are of the past. So obviously that had propelled you in the direction to whereby who you are today, like you say, on a mission yes. to really do many, many good things for people, and especially women. Yes, yes. What exactly. led you to the study of transpersonal psychology? Ah, that's a really unique question because so few people <laughs> ask me that question. I love it. So I answer that. I want to just comment on on what you just said um, Uh right before you asked the question. And I want to say very clearly that one of my beliefs is that our greatest moments of pain in our lives, our greatest wounds, from there emerges our greatest gifts. So I want to say that because it's going to be obvious as we keep talking why I believe that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's a really good thing to establish right at the start of this conversation. So what led me to transpersonal psychology is very interesting. I had a very unusual path because uh, because I dedicated my life to inquiry, I learned a lot of things, and they weren't in a traditional university. I learned Chinese medicine. I learned Ayurvedic medicine. I learned Qigong, martial arts, uh, healing arts. I went on this really deep journey, and when I added up all my training hours, it was over 5,000 hours of training that I'd done, and then I devoted my life to the practice of those arts and, um, and also built a business around it. So by the time transpersonal psychology was made available as an interest, and here's why I did it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I did it because I realized with, with the credentials that I had in that moment, no one would ever listen to me. And I wanted to influence not only the public, but I wanted to influence medical doctors, um, politicians, lawyers, people who are making decisions around women's bodies and women's health. And you can't do that unless you have initials. So that's what led me there. And transpersonal psychology became the, when I sat with the dean of the university I went to, mm-hmm. he said, of all the things you've done, I think that this is going to be the psychology degree that you should get into. And he was correct. So, so that's what led me to study it. And what I loved about it, because I was so immersed in Taoist philosophy uh, and transpersonal psychology includes the spirit, more of a, they're more Buddhist aligned, mm-hmm. but I was able mm-hmm. to bring this Taoist perspective to the psychology and it was fabulous. I, I learned a lot. My dissertation was very informative, very, very informative. In fact, it changed the whole way that I taught women and um, perceived of women all my current teachings now. So I teach actually professionally now. I actually teach medical doctors. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> so I, <laughs> I teach them now this method that was developed back then and proven through the dissertation study and and then continued on um, as I brought it more and more to women around the world. Very, very interesting. You were also at one time, I presume, if you're not doing it anymore, a professional belly dancer. So was that part of your personal healing process? Yeah, you know, um, I grew up with dancing. My my Mm -hmm. mom would put on music and we every single day of my young life we would dance. We would just break out and dance. And when I was very young, I got into ballet, professional ballet. So I was at the Rowan Peg Ballet School and trained very much in ballet. So belly dancing was something I, I didn't even know about, but my body was naturally moving 
people always thought I was a belly dancer. They're like, are you a belly dancer? I'm like, what is that? I don't even know what that is. So at some point I investigated it, and because I had so much skill as a professional dancer, I very quickly became a professional belly dancer. It was just a different style and enjoyed uh, that tremendously. And, yes, I would have to say that it was part of the reclamation process, and it's actually part of my method. I think that belly dancing is an incredible style of movement for female bodies. It's, it's inclusive mm-hmm. of all shapes, all sizes, all ages. And what it does for the pelvic floor is phenomenal. <laughs> the reason I brought that question up is the fact that, obviously, belly dancing and like most dancing, it's more from the rhythmic standpoint of view. There are dancers out there who dance strictly from the rhythmic standpoint of view. They just connect with the music. And if you ask yep. them to repeat the same steps, they can't because the music dictates the rhythmic movement, so to speak. Yes. Having said that, how that ties in at a very young age and into, I guess, your young adult life and to the transpersonal psychology, the study of Taoism and Buddhism and so forth, because those philosophies focuses a lot on life's rhythm. Yes, exactly. That's beautiful. I, I've never had anyone synergize that quite like that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Why is personal consciousness vital in achieving serenity? Uh, yes. Well, so serenity for me, and well, we can call it even peace, mm-hmm. is something I tasted a few times, like profound serenity, profound peace, a few times in my life where I literally felt like I was at one with all things in all time and space, which, and I wasn't on drugs or anything. It was just through the process of meditation. And when I tasted that, I went, my God, there is nothing else on, in, in existence that I want more than a peaceful heart and serenity. And personal consciousness is essential to that because if we can't face, you know, our challenges, our beliefs, our ideas about ourselves, um, they're so formative and they induce so many different types of opinions and emotions and even behaviors that if we're not personally aware of that piece, it's going to be a lot more difficult to then see that we're not just our personality, but we're also, we have an essence. And uh, so serenity for me is when that essence dominates your awareness, your consciousness, Whereas personal consciousness, awareness of your personality and, and everything that's happening in your physicality as well, is it's all, it's all interlinked. It's interlinked with essence, but there, it has such a big influence. And we need that, right? We, we mm-hmm. actually need personality to engage with the world. That's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just uh, the more that we can love our humanity, the more we can love how messy sometimes our lives can be, then actually the quicker we can get to that place of serenity and peace. So true. One of my moms told me a long time ago that we all have a dual personality, a dual identity, so to speak, or dual Mm. life. We have our public life and our personal life. The personal consciousness brings forth our personal life forward. Of course, it's for ourselves in this case. And our true authenticity Mm -hmm. is the subset where the personal and public life meets. The bigger that subset is, the better we are. I love that. I absolutely believe in that. And I, I, I find that the individuals that have such severe boundaries between those two have a lot of conflict. And that inner conflict is not a peaceful state to live in. And so, yes, the more authentic we can be, the more we just bring ourselves out. You know, that's what People crave connection, and they don't want to connect to some ideal. They want to connect to the human being. I love what your mom said. That's amazing. When does sensuality end and sexuality begins? You know, this is such an interesting question. (laughs) So can I frame it in a way that maybe sensuality hasn't been framed before? But the way that I regard sensuality is that it's literally how we make sense of reality. Sensuality is the senses taking in information, translating it into different sensations, whether it's a smell, a taste, a touch, etc. So for me, sensuality never ends. It couldn't end. If it ended, then we would have, um, we would be in a void, like 
like a dark void with no senses. And, and I don't think any of us would ever want that. <laughs> so I think uh, the, the question is, is interesting, though, because in our culture, what we've done is we've made a commodity from sensuality and sexuality, especially sexuality. It's a currency. And mm-hmm. so when does that get activated? I think, you know, that's an important question. And so because sensuality will be present with sexuality, it can't not be unless you suddenly black out, right? It's part of the sexual experience. It's part of all experiences. It's part of what mm-hmm. we're doing right now talking to each other, right? We're really mm-hmm. the sense that we're most engaged with is, is our ability to, to listen and feel one another, um, right. But so sexuality, though, is not necessarily. So here I want to clarify sexuality. Because are we meaning the act of sex or are we meaning our own aliveness? Mm-hmm. Here's what we've done to sexuality in this culture. We have restricted it to this tiny little expression that happens in a very specific location at a specific time with certain conditions. But what we don't realize is that we are actually sexual beings. Now, I don't know about you, Johnny, but I haven't (laughs) figured out how to leave my genitals on the bedside table when I go work or I go visit my in-laws. You know, they're they're always with me. Now, I'm not always engaged and active sexually, but I am a sexual being. So that question is such an intriguing question because I don't believe that sensuality ever ends, whether we're sexual or not. And sexuality mm-hmm. is immersing at all our moments because if we change that word to aliveness, then we are hopefully alive in all our moments. So what I'd love to say is I hope that everyone has very sensual, sexual uh, experiences and that everyone, um, when, when sex- sexuality begins, that sensuality even it gets more enhanced because that's what makes the experience more profound, more intimate, and more satisfying. Very interesting. From a guy's perspective, sensuality is fall play. The connection of the mind, body, spirit versus sexuality is just a physical act. But your physicality, you wouldn't feel anything if you weren't sensual. Like you wouldn't even that's feel correct. Like your skin. Yes. Right. Yes. You, yes. You and that's why I like, compartmentalize it to the standpoint of it's strictly a physical <laughs> action. Yeah. There's no sensation. Of course, there is sensation, but my point is, it's not the true sensation of the mind, body, spirit, so to speak. Right. Right. Well, um, yes, I think that we we have done that to our culture. We've compartmentalized everything, and and part of my life's work with women, especially, to have them understand that they are psychosexual beings. This is not my terminology. It's existing terminology. Mm-hmm. What that means is that who you are, your personality, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, all of that cannot be separated from your physical form. It's, it's one and the same. So right. the only reason we created separation is A, to understand it. It's much easier to operate on a toe if you're not focused on the thumb, for example, right? So there is, you know, a degree of functionality to separate different parts of the body, but it becomes, it belongs to a whole person, one person. Right. And so I, 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 want, I want to allow people to start questioning what they've accepted as a, a predetermined mindset around sexuality, that this over here is sensual and this over mm-hmm. here is sexual, and start to realize, my God, sensuality is everywhere, or else I wouldn't even be aware of reality. <laughs> and sexuality is actually like, I am a sexual being. I'm not always sexually active, but, but right. even then when I am sexually active, where am I? Mm-hmm. Where am I, right? How present am I? What am I bringing to this experience? So these questions i know they're pretty intense for some people but they actually just allow us to really show up um more fully and and some people have this this can even you can have this as a a one-night stand you can have your Mm -hmm. full self there in that experience and it's a what i find is um and this is a concept uh that i use when i teach around relationships but the majority Mm -hmm. of us walk around with what I call a beggar's bowl. We want 
We're looking for our better half, the other half that's going to fill us, fulfill us, turn us on, etc. But the other option is the gourmet plate. And the gourmet plate is like what, you, what you're bringing to the table, what you're offering. And you don't bargain, well, I'll offer you a peach for your plum. You know, it's not like that. <laughs> gourmet <laughs> is generous, right? So I right. don't need anything from you, but I'm happy to share. And you don't need anything from me, but you're happy to share. What kind of connection would that be if we were, mm-hmm. instead of being beggars in our connection, we were you know, offering something. And that can even happen in the most casual of senses. So I think one of the saddest things we've done to this culture is to stress that sexuality is a commodity when it is not, in fact, a commodity. It is who we are essentially as human beings. Very, very interesting. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio, our podcast available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest is Dr. Saida Desilei. She is a thought leader, body philosopher, and the visionary spokesperson for the sexual sovereignty movement. Dr. Saida and I are having a conversation about her life's journey, and in light of the Me Too movement, her latest global offering, Sexual Sovereignty, How Women Claim This and Men Learn to Honor It. Dr. Saida, what is feminine wisdom? Mm. You know, there's a lot of definitions about feminine wisdom. So let, I'll keep it really simple. Let's, mm-hmm. let's say feminine. If we use the word feminine, I mean, it applies to men and women. Okay. And, and let's look at it from the lens of like a traditional Taoist lens, for example, where feminine, we would then want it to take on the lens of what they call yin or receptive. So if we call it, receptive wisdom, it would be the aspect of all of us, men and women alike, where where we're able to um, come back and feel our bodies. So instead of being in the head and and really creative and having all these crazy mind thoughts and all that lovely creation, we actually sink back in the body and we're much more aware of our sensation. It's also the ability to receive. So not only do we exhale, but we also must inhale to live, right? So that receptive Mm -hmm. um, quality. And I think some of the most genius people, the people who are the healthiest, have this amazing balance. And I'm not saying 50-50, because balance is different for all of us, but they have an amazing relationship with being super active and then resting. Like they sort of, you know, all out go for something. And then when it's time to play or it's time to rest, they really like all out for that too. (laughs) So feminine (laughs) wisdom for men and women would be the wisdom to listen to your body, the wisdom to stop and uh, enjoy a little bit of stillness, Mm -hmm. the ability to use your intuition, the, the other sense, that sense that, we all have. We, we had it really strongly when we used to be more of a hunting type of tribe where we had to be in the wilderness and handle, you know, living with creatures that could kill us. And when we needed to hunt, we have to be very intuitive, very instinctual. And so I attribute some of those things to the feminine wisdom. Very interesting. Why is the term domestication a hindrance to self-empowerment for women? Mm, mm. Um, And this is for men, too. Domestication affects both boys and girls at a very young age and continues throughout the lifetime of of a person. So there are good things about domestication, meaning like we're socialized to interact. You know, we're polite with one another. We understand how to drive in in certain ways. Like if you're in Australia, it's one side of the road. If you're in Canada, it's a different side of the road. But so (laughs) there's certain things of being socialized that are actually very important and we need them. But the problem is when we domesticate boys and girls away from trusting their own inherent selves, their own personality, their own person, their own being. So here's mm-hmm. a way that um, we do it with, with children. We say, Uncle Bob shows up, he's all happy. And we say to the child, go hug Uncle Bob and give him a kiss. And the child's like, no, we're like, do it. And we force the child to be affectionate. But we don't know what the kid is picking up. Maybe Uncle Bob isn't such a nice person when he's left alone with the kids. We don't know. We don't know the reason. 
but mm-hmm. we force that. And so what starts to happen very, very to young children, yes, and so what happens is that we no longer trust our intuition, our instincts that say that doesn't feel right. We don't trust it anymore because we were told to override it in order to be polite and to be nice and likable. So that's a hindrance to self-empowerment if you don't trust your own inherent ability to to tune into something. We live in a world where there are people that have malicious intent, for example. If you don't, if you've cut off your ability to tune into what's happening in your environment, you're actually less safe than if you were kept, you know, the the instinctual part of you was actually harnessed as a child versus um, told that it wasn't okay and you had to override it. So it is a detriment. It is a hindrance. And the great news, Johnny, Mm-hmm. is that we can actually take the reins back and go, okay, that's great. I learned all these social skills, fantastic. And now I want to have a direct relationship with my whole being so that I can make choices that feel organically and honestly true to me. Never mind what everybody else is wanting me to be. What is true for me? And that's a very important part in the journey of self-empowerment. Very interesting. Well, it is what it is in terms of my personal space. Every one of us have our personal space, regardless whether we're a man or woman. Forget about sexuality for a change. If somebody stands right in front of you, nose to nose, <laughs> that's infringement, for like a better term. It is. And, you know, animals, <laughs> like, you know, we think they're less than we are, but animals, if you do that, they will growl or they will hiss or they'll move away because right. they have a sense of the amount of space that they need to feel good. Mm-hmm. But yeah. we've yeah. actually trained people out of that sense. And so things happen, and that's why the Me Too movement, I think, has finally burst the dam, that mm-hmm. things happen to us where we didn't speak up or we don't say because we don't know that we can mm-hmm. a lot of the mm-hmm. time. So you're right, and, and I think different cultures have different um, uh, amounts of personal space. If you go to India, for example, everyone's very close physically. You know, they, they, they put their head on your shoulder when they're sitting next to you on a bus. I mean, it's very intimate. You're like, whoa. Uh, but right, when you go, right. you know, even here in the USA, and you're on a bus, people sit as far away from each other as they can. Right. So, so different cultures have different needs for personal space, but it is still a very relevant uh, piece of information. What is my space, and can I take a stand for that space? So true. Is sexual sovereignty the greatest challenge women currently face right now? Ah, I think the greatest challenge that women are facing right now is, and it, it, sexual sovereignty ties into it, is the ability to fully claim their life as their own, where they are very clear on the terms of how they want to live and they live their life according to those terms. That is terrifying for even just a regular woman who's never been abused because to live life really the way that you would love to live your life, there might be moments where you disappoint people where you upset them, where, you know, you shock them because there's a certain um, expectation of how, for example, mothers should behave, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a challenge for women to, to take a step and go, okay, just as we were saying before, here's my personal space, but not only in physicality, what is your personal space in your own psyche, your own heart? Like, what is it that really matters to you? And are you willing to take a stand for it? That is a huge challenge right now, just to have women first identify what they would love, and secondly, to take a stand for it. Very, very interesting. When we talk about the space and the claiming that part of the equation, I don't think it's just framed up to just the sexuality part of the situation, because it encompasses everything else, your very being. Because yes. you're fighting, for lack of a better term, I would not say existence. Obviously, you've existed. But in the sense of my turf, I should have the freedom of doing whatever I like to do within a certain context that is, is my space. Yes. 
so so let's define sexual sovereignty because we've talked about it for like half an hour mm-hmm. and we haven't defined it. So I'd really <laughs> love to just give that definition. So sovereignty yeah. means to have the authority, the autonomy over your own domain. So whether it's a country that is sovereign or a physical body, a person that is sovereign. And I added the word sexual because if I had done body sovereignty, people would inevitably leave out sexuality. And I did not want to leave sexuality out of the picture because it's, it's really crucial that we include it. So mm-hmm. sexual sovereignty means that no person, no um, institution, no government, no one outside of you can make choices about your pleasure, your orientation, how you have sex, your fertility, etc. I mean, imagine, mm-hmm. Johnny, if an organization that, you know, had power came to you and you're a man and said, Johnny, we've decided there's too many unwanted births and there's mandatory vasectomies for all men in this culture now. And it's mandatory. It's been mandated by an external source. You would be outraged, absolutely outraged. Like, hey, this is my body. You can't tell me what to do with my fertility. And so that's what sexual sovereignty is for men and for women. It's for everybody. And that's why I believe it's also a birthright. We are born, the only thing we ever really have our entire life is our body from the moment we're born to the moment we die. That is it. So it would make sense, wouldn't it, that we could lay claim to our own physical space. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is when I was looking at you know, human birthrights, um, at least with the United Nations, and I was trying to look around to see if, there were cultures that had a formal written birthright where a, a person, man or woman, has full authority over their own body and sexuality. And I didn't find it. I mean, it sounds obvious, but it, collectively we've left it out. And so I think mm-hmm. that's why we have things like um, – you know, labor camps, like for children and sex trades and like all these crazy behaviors that we make choices because we don't acknowledge and deeply respect the other person is another sovereign being. That's true. And it goes beyond the sexual aspects of exactly being personal sovereignty. That is, of course, no question about that. Yeah. Society yeah. dictates on how they pass laws. And I say this with full respect, China, for example, for a very long time, had the one baby per family. And what happens is that over a period of time, no one wants women. They all want boys. Well, guess what? There's too many men and not enough women now. The social experiment doesn't really work, and now they're changing that. But the intentions are good. On paper, it looks good. But in the end, it's not. And coming back to what you were talking about, it's very interesting because here I'm respecting a woman in so many ways for her being that human being. But for some reason, somehow, somewhere, when it comes to sexuality, I like to take the dominance in terms of I'm in control of your sexuality. And that's wrong. Yeah. So, I mean... Let's talk about that. That's a really, really powerful point. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing I want to say, something is a birthright. That doesn't mean that suddenly we have this entitled life where we get all these things given to us. Rights, a birthright, which is you can't revoke it, but it also comes with responsibility. Mm-hmm. So what we've done that's wounded this culture is we've not shown people how to be responsible when it comes to their own body and their sexuality. Like you said, in China, they they attempted to do that with the law, and it kind of backfired a little bit for them, but, but it was an attempt to try and train the culture, let's say, to be more responsible with fertility. Um, but further than that, the responsibility, for example, of, a a boundary or a need. Mm -hmm. So right now, as you were saying, if there are particular individuals who believe that they should control someone else's sexuality or should, you know, do this or should do that, what's happening inherently is in the collective mind. None of us, A, have claimed, if, if we all really claimed our sovereignty, do you think we would let anybody talk to us that way or treat us that way? Of course not. No. Right? 
but we mm-hmm. haven't. And then the second piece is when you are sovereign, you have deep respect for yourself. It just kind of organically, that's like what comes with, with stepping into that role for yourself. And it's inevitable to have it for another. So what we're seeing, if someone wants to dominate and, and choose not, I'm not saying, I'm saying, you know, in, in sexual play, sometimes that's fun, but I'm talking mm. more the dominance of, of, you know, overriding a person, overriding right. no, no consent, um, no checking in if this other individual would actually enjoy what's being suggested or et cetera, et cetera. So that disrespect is a symbol of a lack of claiming sovereignty, not only for the individual that's being disrespected, but for the person who's disrespecting. So that's why I'm so excited to have a continual conversation around sexual sovereignty, not just me, but inviting people like yourself, Johnny, your listeners, everybody, let's lean in and start to talk just with our friends, our family members. What would it look like if we claimed sexual sovereignty for ourselves? What would that look like? What kind of world would it be, Johnny, if you were fully sexually sovereign and I'm fully sexually sovereign and we're interacting? And then maybe you say something to me because you're curious. And for me, it comes across as inappropriate purely from a cultural perspective, for example. Right. Um, if I'm sovereign and you're sovereign, that means you're powerful, I'm powerful. I would say, hey, Johnny, um, that landed really weird. Like, I'm not sure that that's what you <laughs> meant to ask me. Right. But I would have, a, um, you would innately be more curious versus offended or afraid. And that's what I would love to see grow in the culture is a sense of responsibility around our bodies and our fertility and our sexuality and our desire and a sense of deep curiosity about others and, um, and never make that assumption that we really know we need to mm-hmm. ask. This is why teaching children consent, for example, is so important and why we shouldn't force children to do certain things, especially with their bodies, like hug or kiss, because you're, what we're doing is doing the opposite of showing them consent. So true. What you're saying is basically the basic human instincts, because there's so many other things in life that we can talk about, whether it's professional things that we're doing. So we're speaking eye to eye. We're expecting you as a colleague. Yes. And then when it comes to perhaps the human natural sexuality part of the equation, then it's a different game. I'm talking down or I'm talking up. Yes, I totally get that. And that's why culturally, I think that's why the Me Too movement actually happened. I -hmm. think that collectively, we've reached a certain point, not for everyone, but as a collective, that enough Mm -hmm. is enough. And somehow it's like the dam (laughs) finally (laughs) burst. Like the camel broke back, the straw that broke the camel's back. So, there's these moments in our history where that does happen, where enough is enough. And um, so I think in this issue, what I feel is happening collectively, and it, it's hard to say that because there's not a lot of evidence of it yet, but I actually sense when I look at what's going on that we are being invited as a collective to mature not only emotionally, but to mature sexually. And there mm-hmm. is a maturation journey for those facets of ourselves. Um, but we're being asked to do it collectively and to take accountability for that particular journey. I agree. Totally agree. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, and TuneIn Radio. My guest is Dr. Saeda Disley. She is a thought leader, body philosopher, and the visionary spokesperson for the sexual sovereignty movement. Dr. Saeda and I are having a conversation about her life's journey, and in light of the Me Too movement, her latest global offering, Sexual Sovereignty, How Women Claim Theirs and Men Learn to Honor It. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. Dr. Saeda, is the Me Too movement all positive? Wow, great question. I would have to instantly say no. I think there's some amazing positive facets to it. And mm-hmm. I think that with any uh, big movements, there are individuals that can um, take advantage with their own agendas. 
versus actually serving what needs to change, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I'm wary of and I'm observing and watching is um, every individual has the right to share their story. That's absolutely true. Every individual has the right to feel all the feelings that they are feeling no matter what those are, absolutely true. And I want to say that none of those individuals, although they've been victimized, none of them, unless they choose to wear that badge, are victims in a permanent sense of that word. And what's important about that is that then they are in a position, when we regard them as a person who's had a victimized experience, but that doesn't make the totality of their identity, now there's a possibility for those individuals to actually reclaim and uh, transform their lives. So part of sharing our emotions, part of sharing the story is essential to that. And for people who are listening, the important part of listening is listen as though the person is powerful, as though you don't have to rescue them or fix them. And as though we have trust in their journey. That's really important. I'm not seeing a lot of that. I'm Mm -hmm. seeing um, a a lot of men now very unsure about even like saying hello or what to do or feeling like they take to take the responsibility of all the wrongdoings of all men through all time and space, which is not their place to do that. And then on the other hand, um, and I wrote an article about this, there's been suggestions that the only way that the world will change in this particular regard is if all men are castrated. That terrifies <laughs> me. That's not the world I want to live in. That's not okay by me. So we need to be very careful when there's huge movements like this to, again, be responsible. Be responsible. Bring your story out. Share it. Be responsible with your feelings. Let yourself feel everything. And then be responsible by offering what would you love? Because sexual trauma is one of the most difficult conversations to have. And no one wants to have it. When I was dying in the hospital, even my closest friends did not come to visit me. If maybe I was dying of cancer, maybe they would have come. But the fact that I was dying of something that happened through a rape experience, it was too confronting for even people that I thought were close friends to open up. And, and so that's okay because we culturally, that's how it is. And so I think we need to be really gentle with ourselves mm-hmm. if, if we are the listeners, if we are the people like, on the receiving end of these stories and feelings and um, have compassion, both if we Mm -hmm. are the person in trauma wanting to share and really claim, because that's part of claiming our bodies back is is to claim our voice, right? And to claim feelings about it. And then what's important to me is now what? So this happened. We have what we have with it. We're asking accountability Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. We're, we're attempting to change things so it's there a lot more of the time. But now what? This is the most mm-hmm. important part of the conversation and we're not really having it. And by now what, I don't mean castration of all men on this planet. That's not an option as far as I'm concerned. So what would it be like, truly like? That's why I think the idea of sexual sovereignty is so crucial as a collective mindset because it allows us to shift into a whole new paradigm where I deeply respect my body and that respect goes out. And then I actually respect yours, Johnny, so that if we're together, Mm -hmm. I'm not Mm going to reach out and suddenly put my hand on you if I don't know that that's okay or not. But I'm French Canadian. We're very touchy feely. Do you know how many people (laughs) I freaked out by doing that behavior? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So, right. so my responsibility is to notice if, you know, if my actions have not been appropriate and to say, oh, my God, I'm really sorry. Did that, was that uncomfortable? Because here's what I meant by it, and I, I, mm-hmm. I apologize. You know, it won't happen again. Just immediately taking, like, B 
be tuned in. We actually have this skill. It is a, a very old inherent skill for all mammals to feel one another. We can tell mm-hmm. when someone's uncomfortable and we just pretend it's not there. Why not just lean in and say, wow, uh, that was awkward. Uh, can we redo that? <laughs> you know, let's be messy. Right. Let's not try and be perfect. There is no such thing as perfect. But messy with a sense of back and vulnerability and accountability and self-ownership. Wouldn't that be an interesting world to live in? Definitely. My take from a guy's perspective, I think from a woman as well as from a guy's perspective, if you and I were to meet, for example, professional or not as a one colleague to the other, my actions, my intent in the course of my conversations and my body language, the way I do things will sort of send a message to you that you know what it is. So having said that, I think the most important thing is the intentions involved. And then you can flip the coin the other way around because from a woman perspective, what are your intentions? If your intentions are to entice me and then all of a sudden you throw a red flag, pull out a yellow card, is that right? Mm. Yeah. So again, you're, you're, you're pointing to that responsibility, to that space where we're responsible for what we're offering, right? We're not beggars here. We have gourmet plates. We're responsible for that offering. And here's uh, an idea that I've been teaching for a very long time. And um, it's encompassed within sexual sovereignty. Um, And actually, I talk a lot about it in my new book that's coming out soon on desire. Mm -hmm. But the idea is around sexual tension. We are a society that's an instant gratification society, but we could actually use a little bit of training around being more masterful with tension of all kinds, but especially sexual tension. So here's what I want to say about it. No one is ever responsible for anyone else's arousal, period. Allow Mm -hmm. the other to have that for themselves. Let them have it. That's their own, but you're not responsible for it. So if, if there is uh, sexual tension, for example, um, and it's in yourself, really own that and go, wow, this is I'm kind of feeling aroused or turned on or switched on right now. That's, that's interesting. And you just own it instead of having to shut yourself down because I think immediate shutdown creates this really weird society where mm-hmm. we repress what's natural and then it acts out in very bad ways. It just mm-hmm. does. So instead, let's own that this is happening. And if it is uh, a situation, say, where I'm out with a colleague, but it's casual, and there's this uh, sexual tension that arises, if I'm sensing that the other person is going in a direction that I don't necessarily want to go myself, I'll just mention it. I'm like, you know, I'm really enjoying flirting and I'm married and completely like in love with my husband. And so I just want to be really clear about my boundaries and what's happening. I actually have these direct conversations, yet we're also afraid. And yet the Me Too movement is not just for women. It's for men and women to claim their voice. It's very important. If you have the intention to, maybe you didn't have the intention to seduce me, but you're enjoying my company so much and I'm flirting a little bit with you, like, hey, where is this going, right? You can ask. You literally Mm -hmm. could go, what, you know, is it just me or is there a little, like, what's happening mm-hmm. here? I'm not comfortable. I'm not used to a woman being like this. And I could say, oh, you know, in, in, as a French-Canadian person, like, we're very affectionate <laughs> and we like to flirt, but it's not personal. And if it's bothering you, I can totally tone it down. And, and I want to, like, you know, make that clear. So now you have this playful thing because there are differences culturally. I remember being in Africa in the Zulu people, mm-hmm. they don't look you in the eye. But French Canadians, like, almost stare you down. So I'm, like, staring <laughs> down these Zulus. They're avoiding my gaze. So finally, I'm right. like, this is weird. So instead of making up a story about it, what do I do? I lean in and I ask the guy. I'm like, why won't you meet my eyes? He said, well, in my mm-hmm. culture, if you meet someone's eyes, you are challenging them. You, you, you want to fight with them. That's correct. And I said, oh, mm-hmm. that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I said, well, in my culture, if you avoid my eyes, you become someone that I'm suspicious of. So 
what we could do with each other as friends is he would look at me a little bit more and I would look at him a little bit less just out of that kind of <laughs> tongue in cheek giggle. Like, okay, right, we have right. these obvious differences, but we both know now because we talked about mm-hmm. it, what they mean and we can just relax and I can let him not look at me and he can let me look at him and either get offended. So that's what's right. going on here. Can you see that culturally we haven't allowed anyone to grow up past being 12 years old? emotionally Mm -hmm. and sexually Mm -hmm. and how right now it's actually in every single individual's hands to go, what do I want to bring to all my interactions? And and you might have to lead because not everyone is having this conversation, but you get to lead it in a compassionate way. It might be weird and awkward and messy, but Hey, that's Mm -hmm. life and that's interaction. And actually, I think it's way more fun than swiping through apps and, you know, pretending that everybody's a commodity. <laughs> right. <laughs> so true. Do you think yeah. the Me Too movement is a generational issue? Uh, no. I think it's a man-woman issue, and I think it's all generations. I, I have okay. had clients all the way up into their 80s mm-hmm. where how they grew up, stuff happened. It was never okay for them to say something or they did say something. Like someone very close to me in my family uh, was violated multiple times by an uncle and she reported it to her mother and the mother just laughed at her and said, nah, he would never do that. So then those women have to live with this confusion. And so the Me Too movement is an opportunity for everybody if that has happened even 30, 40 years ago to go, okay, well now's the moment where I get to do it. I get to claim my voice. Then I get to start my reclamation journey and um and it's never too late i've seen women like i said in their 70s and 80s mm-hmm. have an incredible powerful reclamation of their sexuality and their bodies and their hearts and it's so inspiring to see this the generational issues here i'm talking about is the men from older generations comparatively to the millennials for example where mm. generationally now men and women interact differently. We are buddies. We are together. There's a sense of camaraderie in so many ways to whereby you're a woman, I'm a man, but then we're buddies, if that makes sense. Versus the older generation where I am looking at you at that nice thing (laughs) that I like to get to know. Does that make sense what I'm talking about? Yeah, but I, I, I don't think that that's changed much. I mean, I have a friend whose son is mm-hmm. now in jail because he was at a party, 17 years old, very recent mm-hmm. incident, in the hip-hop culture, and he raped yeah. a young woman at that party. So wow. it, was he looking at her as a buddy? No. Was he looking, you know, was he maybe yeah. encouraged or pressured to do it? Probably yes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all of these factors come in. So I think, yes obviously there are differences in our interactions with the generations. Right. But I actually miss chivalry, to tell you the truth. When I'm in a culture <laughs> where there's some chivalry, right. I love it. I, I actually really enjoy um, mm-hmm. this kind of kindred kindness that, right. that is offered and that I can feel like, wow. If, I have been in situations fairly recently where I was on a beach in Barbados and there was someone from a different island on that beach, and he would not leave my friend and I alone. He, he came and actually sat himself on my towel, and I kept telling him, please go away. We're not interested in you, and he would not leave. And I finally got up, and I walked over to an older man on the beach, mm-hmm. and I said, this man is hassling us, and I'm getting scared because he's not leaving. Mm-hmm. And the guy mm-hmm. said, I got this. And so he went up and took care of it, and the man left. So I think there's something beautiful where if we can exist culturally for the most part, that most of us are in a state of respect and awareness and connection. And if something is happening, no matter what age or who, we actually can be present and support and say, hey, you know, that comment wasn't really cool. We're at work Mm -hmm. and I'm uncomfortable what you just said to her. So, you know, the accountability is going to be held by each one of us choosing the kind of world we want to live in. So, Johnny, I keep hearing that, you know, (laughs) you're such a great guy. You're like, you really want to empower people. You want to connect with them. You want to have some fun. And and you don't want to shut yourself down in the process. 
And right. that's actually true for the majority of people. Well, you're always going to have the ones around the perimeter that are always going to be who of they course. are. You can't change yeah. that, unfortunately. Let's talk about your global yeah. community for women called The Daring Project. Please tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, I love that. This is a growing community. It's an online membership. There's literally women from all ages, all cultures, all different, so many different countries. Imagine a, uh, an environment that's uh, encouraging you, that your voice matters, your story matters, you matter. And you may not Im- immediately speak out, but you're, you, you're witness to women who are. And, and what happens in that kind of culture is you, you naturally start to feel more confident. You naturally start to get curious about, hey, well, what, what would I love and what isn't okay for me and what is really okay? So it's that kind of beautiful culture. That's why I called it the Daring Project because I really believe that one of the things that will help change this world is that we break apathy and we become more daring. And daring is inherent to human beings. We always had to dare. You know, mm-hmm. look how we grew up. If you just go in, in the nature world, it's crazy out there. <laughs> you have to be daring to survive. So we need to be daring to be able to ask questions and to stand up for ourselves and to create a world we'd love to live in. Um, so that's The Daring Project. And literally, um, people can check it out at thedaringproject.com. Should society mandate social behavior? Mm, that's a really good question. And I think that it is already doing that. So what we need to look at is, is the behavior because here's what we didn't ask in the Me Too movement. Nobody, men or women, sat back and said, wait a second, I am part of the environment that created these opportunities. I participated in that. So how did we collectively create an environment where so much trauma happened, right? So yes, Mm -hmm. in a way, uh, society does mandate social behavior, and each individual is society, so we can, through conscious choice, start influencing and changing behavior. And we see that already, right? If you look back in different generations, at some point women couldn't vote, and now they're voting, and we take that for granted. But, but that hasn't been around that long. So things can change, but they usually change from individuals willing to go, actually, this is the kind of world I want to live in. So true. What would you like for men to gain from listening to you? Thank you, Johnny. I love including men. First of all, for, for, yeah, I know it's important. I mean, I have a beautiful husband. I love my father. I have great guy friends. Um, but this is not a, a women's issue. This is a human issue. Being responsible sexually is uh, for both men and women. Knowing how we would what love, like find out, guys, what would you really love in an interaction and what does that look like? And what are you bringing to the table? And you're part of the equation. We want you to be part of the equation. So how are you contributing to that equation? Uh, these are great questions for the guys to contemplate. <laughs> Where can someone go to get more information about you and your courses and keep up with your latest happenings? Uh, thank you, Johnny. DareYourDesire.com. Dare yourdesire.com. That's my main site. And there's a ton of information there. So it's one of the easiest places to get it. And again, the daringproject.com for the women who want to check that out. Fantastic. And what's next for you? What's next for me is uh, I'm birthing a new book. It's called Desire. It's a little pocketbook and it's coming out in June. And it basically looks at how we Right now, especially we're vilifying desire, but desire has been vilified for a long time. And I actually take a stance that desire can be our compass to living a very fulfilling life. And what happens when that gets hijacked and what to do about it. Uh, so that, it's a small pocketbook, but it's, it's filled with very personal stories, stories to like depict what I'm attempting to talk about and really encouraging us to have a whole new relationship with desire, our own desire for life. Wonderful. Since our show is about people, family, and living life, what recipe for living would you like to share with our listeners this morning as we close the show? 
Uh, I love this question. So I think because we talked about sensuality so earlier on, that's what I mm-hmm. want to give to people. So you are a sensual being. So today, just for example, which of your senses is the strongest? Which is the weakest? And can you enhance that weaker one? Start to get curious. Start to realize that by being more sensual in all your moments, and that just means Are you receiving the information? You know, if there's a beautiful flower, really let it touch you. If there's a gorgeous smell, let that touch you. If you're eating something absolutely mind-blowingly delicious, like really let that touch you. Let your sensuality actually enhance your life to bring juiciness and aliveness and beauty because it's right here, right now, and it will actually make you way more aware and a lot safer in this world to do that. That's beautiful. I love it. Dr. Saeda, thank you for the wonderful recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Tuesday morning, February 27. My guest will be Amy Newmark, the publisher and editor-in-chief for Chicken Soup for the Soul. Amy and I will be having a conversation about their latest release, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Miracles and More. 101 stories of angels, divine interventions, answered prayers, and messages from heaven. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Dr. Saida, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you again and have a blessed day. Thank you so much, Johnny. Thank you. Bye-bye. Introducing McDonald's new one, two, three dollar menu with favorites for one, two, or three dollars, like the McChicken, the Bacon McDouble, the Happy Meal, and a weekend getaway with the husband and kids. Uh, no, but the one, two, three dollar menu could help you save for one, especially if we leave the kids at home with Grandma, of course. Oh, yeah. Build whatever meal you want with favorites on McDonald's new one, two, three dollar menu. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal.